Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Banking Expo Unplugged, the podcast series brought to you by Open Banking Expo. I'm Ellie Duncan, Head of Editorial and Broadcast here, and today I'm really delighted to be joined by Kareem Rifay, who is the Managing Director uh, for Middle East and North Africa and the Gulf region at the London Institute of Banking and Finance. So just to tell you a little bit more about the Institute or the LIBF, uh, it's a not-for-profit organisation. It's been around for just over sort of 140 years and the Institute aims to promote sort of financial inclusion. Uh, it does this by delivering bespoke programmes that provide sort of higher education and, and finance qualifications around areas such as fintech, uh, transformations or digital transformation, sustainable finance and financial literacy. And that last one is an area that we'll be talking about in a little bit more detail in today's episode. Um, back in 2018, the LIBF partnered with the Abu Dhabi Global Market Academy. Um, so this academy uh, and LIBF have uh, gone on to provide solutions to cater to the education and training needs of the banking and finance sector in the Gulf Council countries and in the MENA region as well. Uh, so we're really going to be talking to Kareem all about that today and finding out more about um, what's going on really in that region. So welcome to the podcast, Kareem. Thank you, Ellie, and uh, for having me. And it's my pleasure to connect with you and your audience. Well, let's start off with finding out a little bit more about you. Uh, so when did you join the LIBF and what does your role there involve? So actually in 2018, when uh, the London Institute of Banking and Finance and the Abu Dhabi Global Markets were uh, working towards the regional uh, partnership, a, uh, I've been offered the role of the uh, Institute uh, Managing Director to set up that relationship. And this was a bit of a strategic decision for the Institute at that time, because that's the first international office. We've been always operating with all our international, uh, international relationships uh, out of the UK. And uh, my role was to... Uh, start promoting and building the brand of the institute in the region and and and, and working that relationship out. and i think in almost now four and a half years close to five years it uh, worked out well beyond even our own expectations because we found a lot of interesting things to do about that region uh, as we talk uh, uh, during the podcast I'll, I'll try to share as much as i can yeah, of course. So um, perhaps you can explain before we hone in a little bit more on, on that region, perhaps you can talk more, a bit more broadly and explain the types of programmes that the LIBF offers and, and who they're aimed at specifically. The great thing about the London Institute of Banking and Finance since establishment in 1879, as as you mentioned, the Royal Chartered Non-for-Profit Organisation, that we never change our uh, motivation and, and, and goals. As an institute, uh, back then, a uh, number of bankers established the institute because they wanted to promote education in the industry. They wanted to promote the good conduct and the good cause within that industry. I don't want to say that uh, this problem still exists or, or something like that. So don't quote me for this. But we always, everywhere we go, every day, generation over generation, 
we try to keep that in our mind that always the institute is delivering the good cause uh, to our stakeholders, students, partners, uh, alumni, uh, supporting their education. And we, I always say in short, we are very specialized in our topics, but we're very diversified in our solutions. So if you want to learn anything about banking and finance, if you're age five years plus to even retirement and post-retirement, we are your one-stop shop. A, uh, that spread out from what you said as a financial education, uh, which is the financial inclusion. We have programs in schools uh, for different underprivileged uh, uh, populations around the world where we support them, understand what's about finance and banking and how, how they can have a better life uh, managing their own finances. To uh, that's, that's where we say even our brand is a lifelong learning partner, you know, so starts at a very early age if you want to learn something about banking and finance. Then also we have our university and we are the only university that have a campus in the financial city of London and uh, where we teach our bachelor degrees and postgraduate degrees uh, for students. So now you move to age like what, 17, 18, you know. Then if you became a banker and you started your career, you start working with us on the professional education, vocational education programs registered with the Ofqual in the UK. And uh, uh, regardless of what part of the industry you are in, you, can, you have a vocational education qualification through the Institute. And this is where you can keep growing in your career by studying more and more from financial advice to mortgage advice to relationship management, fintech. There's so many things we do as, as an institute. And plus, we have our B2B relationships with different institutes of bankers, with different banks around the world where we develop for them custom learning education executive programs. Plus, because we hold our indefinite two degree award in powers, we support also a lot of institutes and, uh, and, and, and education providers around the world endorsement and accreditation of their own content and own material. So that's, that's how, in, in, in short, we are diversified in, uh, in solutions and specialized in, in topic. We are all practitioners, so we all come from the industry. I am a banker by descent, let's say, and, <laughs> and then like grown to the education side. That's fascinating. And, and, and I want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, which is Obviously, building out that that kind of presence uh, in the MENA region in Abu Dhabi specifically, but but the fact that that's the first time that the institute had kind of built out a, an international presence, you know, actually um, uh, opened an office elsewhere other than the UK. So um, let's come on to talk about then what you're up to in MENA. Why, firstly, why did the LIBF feel the need to to actually locate? there what what's the reasoning behind that middle east is a very interesting region it's a young region a population of uh, age uh, 45 uh, and, and and lower is is the majority of, of of that region and when you have this type of age group you would see that it, there is a mandate for education and growth that's that's one thing the other thing is the british education repetition the British education repetition in the region is always uh, a leading brand. And people will always look up to London as a financial center. And they will look up to uh, UK as a um, 
as one of the most uh, quality-based uh, uh, education. So that's what gives us another motivation is the uh, brand. Also, heritage-wise, the Institute had a lot of uh, relationships in the Middle East that exist from the 70s, from the 60s, from the 80s. And we felt like by being closer to our clients, we would understand more. And we will be able as well to work with our stakeholders to promote our good cause as we've spoken about. And also there is a gap in banking and finance education in the region where we feel that this is our chance to be able to uh, to uh, deliver a different uh, education. And our mindset at that time was that become an international local partner for our community. So we are the international uh, British education qualities, but we're willing to listen to your challenges, your needs, and we will work with our uh, different products and services to be able to meet those kind of challenges that you face regionally. And you know, the industry itself, uh, Ellie, is it's it's very interesting because banking and finance it has an international benchmark, but still it has a local flavor. You walk to a branch in the UK, opening a consumer relationship. It's it looks like the same if you're doing it in Dubai or in Abu Dhabi or in UAE or Kuwait or whatever in the Middle East. It looks like the same. But the details about the relationship, it's very uh, different. So that's where education has to cater both, bring you to the international standards, but still appreciate your uh, customs or, or, or your regional uh, challenges. Yeah, so I guess consumer ha- behaviours are quite different then, uh, especially as you mentioned there, there's such a young population, isn't there? Um, so how, w- what does that mean when it comes to the relationship that uh, consumers there have with their banks and other financial institutions? I would say that uh, what a customer needs from a bank, it's almost the same everywhere in the world. They want a safe safekeeping of their own wealth, with a bank that can give them the right advice at the right time about what they need to do with their own wealth and money and hard-earned uh, income. Uh, the, the challenge is the consumer appetite differentiates based on the customs and the uh, culture uh, around. Uh, from an investment options available for them to saving options to, to, to different uh, things. What is really uh, interesting these days in the region that younger generations are almost the same everywhere of the world and the world the globalization and the mindset and the social media have emerged all the citizens to become more of an international citizen so all the young generations are looking for this high-tech bank that can give them easy access in their pocket they don't need to go visit branches they want the same like as if you walk in london and you talk to anyone who's like 20 years for 25 years or 30 years okay what Oh, no, I don't want to visit the bank. The branch is like busy. I want just to get something on the go or something like that. So we see certain similarities in in segments of of, of the industry. And we see still different cultural aspects in other segments. And banks are for all, you know, like you have to cater as much as you can. Yeah. And so how have you tailored your your programs over there then? What, what, What are you offering exactly? What we did is a kind of a hybrid blend between our classic solutions of professional vocational education qualifications, for example, level three, level four, UK of quad registered. But what we did, we we wanted to give 
uh, a meaningful education to our uh, our. Uh, I don't want to use, keep using the word student like to our uh, colleagues and and bankers. You know, a, that's why we blended those learning solutions with applications of behavioral and leadership skills, and we try to deliver the programs in a way that they are able not to be technically competent, but becomes discredited. So they can go and their own employers find this kind of transformational education happened and mindset change happened to them. That's why we uh, we give as much importance to the behavioral and leadership and skill development to as well to the technical ones, because that's where you unlock your technical knowledge to be able to serve your consumers, your customers, your your colleagues, and in in a, in a better way. That's how we we did this kind of, of of blend between getting the British vocational education standards complemented with a behaviors and skills that regionally accepted. So this is where the difference have happened. And so, how um uh, the kind of programs that you the financial literacy programs specifically how are they kind of designed to raise um awareness and and help to build those kind of healthy financial behaviors that that are obviously so important to a kind of functioning um kind of banking system yeah now we're moving a little bit from the to another segment of our business in the region because what was i referring to is mostly the professional education for bankers who would serve clients but in in financial literacy we working with different government institutes and we we found through research that the underlying reason for example for divorce rates in the region is related to financial uh, incapability so some people would say like oh really is this really a direct cause of being one of the highest factors of divorce rates yes because financial stress will bring a uh, and emotional challenges and those emotional challenges would affect your decisions about continuation of of different social aspects of your own life and uh, as it sounds for some of our audience outside the region that for example middle east is known as a rich uh, oil production rich regions so like is there is financial challenges so as an institute this was an interesting story for us to start trying to dig deeper on details you know and 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 you know uh, if you would agree with me financial uh, competency and uh, financial literacy it's uh, it's a subjective uh, topic why because for example what i can see in the uk as someone who's financially capable it might not be within the same social standards for example in the uae someone we might see a middle class in a country it might be a lower class in a different country so like you have to evaluate the financial capability of someone within the context of their own economical and microeconomics uh, level that's number one number two uh, we 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 in so many countries we underestimate the peer and the social pressure that you get to be able to afford financially uh to your family or to your uh, beloved ones because if you see uh, the move of influencers fashion social media it put a lot of more pressure like if i remember at my, at the 80s or the 90s we had only tvs and tv commercials and this is what is the only one pressure for consumers to go for uh, for lifestyle products or something like that but now advertisement 
is everywhere, anywhere. It puts a lot of a lot of pressure on families, on family house uh, households, and on kids. On and every media is is approaching and reaching every, every segment. So that's number two. We found that, that the peer pressure and the social pressure is one of the major causes of uh, of um, financial stress in in the region. The the third element we found out that regardless of your educational background, if you're a doctor, you're engineer, or even you're uneducated, still there is no formal education of financial literacy in 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 the region. So you can grow up as a doctor or as an engineer, but still you don't know how to deal with money. And we believe as an institute that wealth is not generated or not evaluated based on your revenues or income. But it's about your uh, well-being and and, and uh, a good uh, management of your resources. So on that basis, we start working on delivering a curriculum that it's delivered to uh, a group of uh, of uh, what we. I don't like to use that word underprivileged because everyone is privileged in their own way. But I would say for people who have this kind of financial stress, and over that program, we start from what is money. Moving ahead to to make them have kind of uh, the program has three elements: how they can manage financial relationships, how they can manage social financial relationships, and how they can manage money itself. So, if we speak about managing relationships, how they can manage a bank, you know, how they can manage their relationship with any financial instrument or institution. Then we talk to them how they can manage their financial social relationships, how they can disconnect from peer pressure, from from what they are asked for or what they want to do. Then talking about money, how to save, how to invest, how to budget, how to keep control of resources and how you can grow, have, have a plan of a steady growth over time. And the good thing that this program have been delivered through an ecosystem, which is a very interesting ecosystem. This is when you see how an institute like uh, the London Institute of Banking and Finance with our heritage are able to bring different stakeholders. So we have volunteers who are the ones who are like having the technical experience delivering our content. They are bankers or people interested to support the community. So we train them. Then they start working on groups. You know, this mindset of support groups, for example, because by the way, being financially incapable, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a disease. Think about obesity or addiction, for example. Some people have the habit to spend money. So they need to get support group to help them manage money differently. So they have groups that they meet every weekend or something for like a couple of hours, go through the content, then have certain conversation exercises that they do and then over 12 weeks, we start moving them to financial clinic where they get some tailored advice. And through that out, the potentially they start having those kind of financial plans. Uh, also, uh, I don't want to stick to people's mind that financial literacy program are for people who are only suffering, you know, but financial literacy program also for people who it's better when you're not suffering because you will learn a lot of tips a lot of techniques on how you can grow. So I would see it a mandatory element of education in schools in the region. I would see it a mandatory element in education in universities. I myself give different sessions to kids, to university students, to uh, elder generations. And, and I think what's happening now, banks and different government institutes around the region start understanding the importance of financial literacy. And they ask us and the they want to work in different initiatives and not only in the UAE, but also as well around the region as well.
Yeah, that, that's really fascinating work because I know certainly in recent years in the UK, there has been a, a push to try and get financial sort of education into schools, um, actually make it a part of a, a kind of education curriculum, really. So it's great to hear about the work that you're doing in the MENA region to, um, as you say, working with, with so many different um, kind of areas of the population. Like you say, I suppose financial literacy programmes are just as important for those who perhaps feel like they might be already financially literate, right? Because there's always something we can learn, presumably, about how to manage our money and finances. True. So uh, just just going back to those those kind of um, the, the other side of, of the Institute, um, sorry to jump around a bit, but the bit you were talking about earlier, the kind of professional kind of qualifications for bankers, you spoke about how obviously um, many of your colleagues and yourself, of course, at the London Institute of Banking and Finance um, already have a background in this industry. You, you've worked as as bankers or in other areas of, of the industry. So how important is it um, to have that that knowledge and that actual kind of on the ground experience, if you like, at the Institute in order to ensure your programmes really are effective and relevant? This is a critical question, you know, because actually I don't... Uh... I, I don't want to sound a little bit uh, pro being a practitioner when you're delivering education, but I'll, 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 I'll just try to give you two different examples. Like if we're speaking about education, it's either coming from a research-based institute where mostly research giving you certain statistics and data that you throw out, that you build your modules and you deliver those modules. If you add the practitioner element to that kind of process, you will have a kind of validation to where the research results and education because the group around that, they have enough experience to be able to give this kind of credits to the research uh, outcomes. So that's what makes practitioner-led education more uh, more applicable to specific industries. I don't want to generalize my, my, my comment. So because we all have our own experience, when we build modules, when we work even on the basis of research or results, we have a, a good uh, debatable uh, references, you know, of our own. That's where even it makes our classrooms, our workshops, our education, more uh, inclusive because it it gives the chance to students to ask us questions where it's out of the box and we give enough case study based and experience to our students where they feel this is more bringing them more to the reality of the industry than being the technicalities of the industry because you know it's a problem everywhere in the world when it comes to university grads. There is always a need for a bridging programs for university grads in any industry to be able just to move from a student mindset to a, we can do this as practitioners from day one. So that's where we see, for example, the employability levels of our graduates, for example, in the UK, 95%, 100% in six months after graduation, for example, banks, uh, it's just like uh, 
you know, the brand is too strong and banks understand that I would get people ready. We deliver programs in undergrad, which is in risk management, bachelor degrees, for example. No other universities deliver risk management in banking and finance as far of my knowledge, you know. So we are, that's why the practitioner education giving the chance to, to the students. The other important element as well is that um, we understand and we live the same problems that the banks and bankers are living now. Name it, for example, digital transformation, fintech emerging to the industry, uh, sustainability and sustainable finance. And what, what's our role as banks in, 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 in going green, in bu- building ESG frameworks, in supporting economies? Because if we agree or we don't agree, but banks are the one of the major economical drivers of success in any country, you know. So what's our role in those? What's our role in financial inclusion to support? Because a good customer, an educated customer, is 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 an uh, uh, is a very important element we're looking for in in different countries. So that's why the practitioner brand is uh, is not just for uh, for us to to be proud of. Um, um, there's so many uh, different. Uh, inputs that being a practitioner are able to contribute uh with yeah that that's fascinating like you say i guess you know when when you study a subject at university you're often studying the theory really um as opposed to learning how you might put that into practice in a job in the real world as it were um well look i i didn't want to have you on the podcast without talking a little bit about open banking specifically of course um and um and so i wanted to to kind of talk about uh, saudi arabia at this point because back in in 2021 the saudi arabian monetary authority launched a framework for open banking in the kingdom and and that open banking went live in saudi arabia just a few months ago i believe so um I was wondering whether you could talk about um, the, the kind of challenges that the UAE faced in, in implementing open banking. And, and, you know, it still will come across some challenges, even though it, open banking is live there. And whether there are any similarities with the UAE and its impl- implementation uh, along with the UK. OK, so I would say that let, let, let's take a kind of a comparative views to to the uh... To the situation between the GCC in general, including Saudi Arabia and UAE, and the European situation or the North American situation when it comes to open banking. Uh, open banking is a result of a lot of uh, initiatives being taken into blockchain and, 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 and fintech uh, and digital transformation, where data become key for for like all the stakeholders to be able to operate. And, and, and that's where the open banking ideas came out uh we understand all of us understand from from the uk from us from whatever that those topics are still emerging in the middle east and and the region so maybe we're a little bit behind in certain areas but the good thing about middle east being there for for quite some time is that in middle east we're good in in catching up we might certainly but we will catch up and then we will have a lot of uh uh, uh, positive uh, footsteps. Uh, 
what's happened in Saudi Arabia is just one more interesting thing as it's happening for the past three, four years in Saudi Arabia with the total um, transformation happening in the country in general, you know? So, and the when the country is going through that change, there is a lot of barriers and borders need to be taken out the way. That's where the central bank and SAMA, for example, in Saudi Arabia came up with the with the new framework of open and open banking in UAE is um, there's different regulators like the IFC and ADGM and the Central Bank of UAE have put already the frameworks for open banking. Uh, the challenge is in our markets in general. It's it's over competitive. What, what what I'm trying to say this. So sometimes it's not a regulated or a government issue. Sometimes it is the uh, market issue. Why? Because if we talk about, for example, UAE, we're speaking about 54 banks competing over a population of 9 million, for example, or 10 million. So there is an over-competition. So those open banking concepts will give cost, will give more control to the consumer of their own decisions about their data, their own decisions about their product, and it will increase the uh, competitiveness index of that own market. You know, so sometimes you as a regulator trying to promote things, then you get certain resistance also from the own market itself. While it might look like from an overall arching perspective that the banks are also pushing for it, you know. But let's understand also the challenge of, of sharing information. Sometimes it comes challenging for the, for, for, for the banks itself. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, relatively... The number of available banks versus population is not that competitive as much as as uh, because we're speaking about twenty eight twenty nine banks if I'm, I'm I'm correct and the population of twenty million plus, you know. So if you look into that from from different perspective, th- this is this is one element. But UE also is a technology hub because if we look, for example, into the government itself and the digital transformation happening in the government, it's very interesting. It's almost zero office based now like you can do anything and everything without being in touch with the with the with any offices of the government so i think this is the logical move i wouldn't want to position that, that there is a gap between uae and saudi arabia i think this is what goes back to what we talked about at the beginning early that there is still regional and country level differences that sometimes make the implementation of different initiatives uh, uh, a bit uh, require customization to meet the the, the market uh, appetite. What's also very interesting to, to see in general is how open finance as well will evolve in Europe, for example, because now the initiative itself is to open borders for clients and for them to have more control of their own decisions uh, I'm worried about the uh, financial capability or technical capabilities of of of, of the consumer themselves. You know, because you 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 know we've been talking about financial inclusion and how many people are educated and how many co corporates are educated and how many CFOs can manage those kinds of things. Uh, it's a bit of a question to be answered by time, and we will wait and learn uh, how 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 it evolves. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I guess that just kind of makes your job at, at the London Institute of Banking and Finance even more important and and, re- and relevant. 
Well, look, Kareem, I know we could probably go on talking about this for another 30 minutes. Yes. Um, but um, I, I, I'm sorry if I sound a little bit serious in most of my responses and answers, you know, but the topic itself, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting topics and very interesting questions you've been asking me. So that's why, you know, uh, very important for us to be as transparent and as open to the audience and try to give them not an answers, but give them uh, an information for them to try to think more and, and look more for, 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 for their own answers, because it's not us. It's, I always say it's uh, no one has the right answer. You have to find it yourself, you know? So that, 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 that's very important, you know? Well, I really appreciate your, your answers, your honesty and your answers today. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Kareem. It's my pleasure, Ellie. Thank you so much. My thanks again to Kareem there from the London Institute of Banking and Finance. It was really fascinating speaking to him today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Uh, that's all we have time for today. But if you want to catch up on any recent episodes of the Open Banking Expo Unplugged podcast, then go to the on-demand section of the website. Until next time, goodbye for now. <laughs>